Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right. Okay, the amazing, deep, and rich book of Romans. God's power to transform anyone. We're going to head into Romans chapter 9 today, and these next three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, are unique in the book of Romans, and some say that they are kind of like a parenthesis in the, in the whole work of, uh, of, the, of the book. And it kind of seems that way at first glance, but I actually see it fitting amazingly into the whole theme of God bringing salvation to all mankind. That's kind of, I think, I think we'll see that. And really, Romans 9 through 11, you have to kind of see it as a whole. So even though we'll be breaking it down, we kind of have to really get the full interpretation through the entire thing. So hang in there, and I'll explain more of that in a minute. But First, and by the way, just so amazed by you this morning, coming here on a morning early and, and believing like we just sang, thank for that great song, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Messiah. Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah this morning? He is the Messiah. So thank you for being here and loving God's word. Here's a question for you. If God has given his word that he would do something, can anything or anyone stop him from doing it? Well, we know the answer. Absolutely not. You cannot stop God if, he's, if his word says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Now, humans certainly aren't this way. Um, if I tell my wife that I will start painting the house tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., I hate painting, by the way, okay? It's, I despise it. Um, so if I tell her, I'm going to wake up and in early in the morning, I'm going to start painting the house. Now, something might happen to me to hinder me doing that. Uh, I might accidentally sleep in a little longer. I might get COVID. I might uh, f- have freak back pain all of a sudden. Who knows what might happen to me? But uh, a lot of things could keep me from painting. But if I'm trustworthy, if I'm a trustworthy person, I'll get it done. I will get it done. But even, listen, the most trustworthy person, the most trustworthy human on the planet, uh, could still break a promise if they were to get seriously injured or or something that happens to them outside of their power. They may not be able to keep their word. With God, nothing is outside of his power. Therefore, if he gives his word, there is no way that he can fail. It is impossible for him to fail. It's impossible for his words to fall. Now, real quick, before we jump in, do you realize how comforting that is? (laughs) When we think about what God has promised to the believer and what's coming ahead, how comforting to know that God cannot not keep his promise. He will keep it. God will not let one word of this book fall to the ground until all is fulfilled. And that's why we're still here, because God still has promises to fulfill. Now, this is what we'll be reminded about today in Romans chapter 9. It's one of the great grand themes of this. God did everything necessary to make salvation available to both the Jew and the Gentile. 
That's the grand theme, I think, in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. God is gonna make everything, the salvation, available to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. It's been kind of the theme since the Romans chapter one, we saw that. He's bringing salvation to everybody. Now, it's centering on the past. Now, the, the, the theme of these three chapters are centering on Israel. Nine is, this, is the past of Israel, 10, the present, and 11, the future. And then all of it bringing, and by looking at their history, their present, their future, tying in the Gentiles and how God is going to bring in the Gentiles into this family of God. We're all gonna be one happy family as we trust in Christ, in Christ. So let's first see here Paul's heartfelt sorrow over Israel as we dive in. And this is a, this is a big and weighty chapter, so I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you have your brains on with you, and uh, we're going to get, I think, a lot out of it. So Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now this is, these are some amazing, amazing verses. And uh, Mark Thrift spoke about this a few weeks ago. But these words, this is not the Apostle Paul speaking fluff here. His, Paul is saying, my conscience would not let me speak hyperbole, really. These are purposeful, heartfelt words from the apostle. And he says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow. Look at those words, great heaviness and continual sorrow. Think about those words for just a minute. And he said, it's for my brethren, the, the Jews. Now this is an apt description for any Christian, anybody in here or anybody within the sound of this voice here, if you have a wayward child or you have an unsaved loved one that you care for, you know, even you could be going through life and enjoying life and having joy on a day-to-day -day basis, but you know that, that there is just something, there's just an inner heaviness that is very hard to get rid of. There is great heaviness and continual sorrow. Here's the great apostle who has much joy in the Lord. And yet he's saying, I have a great heaviness inside. I have a continual sorrow in my heart. Why? And he goes even a step further and says something I don't know if anybody can say, and that is that I wish even that I could be cursed, accursed from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He was talking about the Jew, his Jewish brethren. That he basically, I mean, think about this, is if I'm understanding this correctly, he's basically saying I, I could take their hell if I could give them my heaven. I would take their hell if I could give them my heaven. Of course, it doesn't work like that. Jesus took the curse for us, and all they have to do is come to Christ, but put their trust in him, his Jewish brethren, but they haven't. And so Paul is just under this great weight of sorrow. And I certainly can say, I don't think I'm there if I think about people who are unsaved. I don't know if I could say, I'll take their hell if, if they could take my heaven. But Paul is an amazing man, and he has some intense, intense love for his people. This is real. He loves the Jews. And that sets up who he is talking about now in this chapter and kind of what he's about to say. I'm talking about my lost brothers and sisters in Israel. And he starts by reminding them of this. And that is that they have a unique blessing of being Israel. There's a unique, there are unique blessings that come from being Israel. Verse 4, who are Israelites? 
to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Now one quick thing as we start here, he says he uses the word Israelites and he'll use the word Israel and Israelites over and over again. In these chapters, he uses Israel because he's talking about the nation, uh, and, and not, he doesn't use Jews as much. He might use the word Jews in other places, but here Israel, because he's really talking about the, the nation. That's what we need to keep in our mind. We're talking about the nation of Israel. And in, by and large, many of them are away from Christ, is what he's saying. But here's the thing. God had, prompt, God had chosen these people a long time ago as a special group of people to carry God's message to the world. They were going to be God's mouthpiece to the entire globe. And it says even a list of things that they are privileged to have uh, as a child of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Here's what they get. They get the adoption, it says. God called them a son. He was in God, they're in God's family. Uh, there's a familial aspect to being a Jew. And then they have the glory, which is referring to the Shekinah glory of God that resided in their presence in the Old Testament there. They got the covenants the eternal promises of God to Abraham, to David, to Moses, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. The, the Jews were entrusted with keeping the law, the standard, really, uh, God's standard upon which all good laws are created, um, and, the, and the moral laws of God that, that undergird all society. And then service, the priesthood, the, the sacrifices, the feasts, all of them point to that the point to the Savior. Who got all this stuff? It was the Jews. It was Israel. God chose them out of all the peoples of the world, all the families of the world. He chose them. And then the promises, thousands of promises that God has kept and still will keep in the future for Israel. And then and also through Israel to the whole world. And remember, one of the greatest promises is the one God gave in the covenant to Abraham, and that is, I will bless you, I will bless them that bless you, Abraham. So anybody who blesses the Jews, anybody who uh, blesses Israel will get a blessing themselves. So these were all, all these promises, all these things were given to, as it says, the fathers in Israel and, it, and they passed it down. And then ultimately the greatest thing ever and that is Jesus Christ came through the line. Jesus the Messiah, as we just sang a few minutes ago, came through the Jewish line of the seed of David and he was the greatest gift that's ever been given to the world. We have a Jewish savior, if you will. And everything came through the, through the Jewish line. Did you know that there are only two books in the Bible that aren't written by a Jew? And that is the book of Luke and the book of Acts. They're both written by Luke. Everything else is written by a Jew. We have a Jewish book. And, um, and God has ordained it that way. God has chosen it that way. And this verse, by the way, here, verse 5, is a clear statement of, of the deity of Christ. I don't want to pass over that too quick here, but... Look what it says, Jesus, God, God blessed forever. That means he's talking about Jesus, who is overall God blessed forever. This is a clear statement of the deity of Christ. But remember, Paul has just said that he was so burdened in his heart because they're not accepting Christ as the Messiah. They don't see it the way he sees it. They don't see that Jesus has come and he is the Savior of the world. So here's the question now as we launch in. Does this mean that all of this unique blessing that God gave to Israel was all for naught? 
Does it mean that God's word has fallen flat? God has not kept his word to deliver and save people because all of Israel or most of Israel now is just, um, has just basically ignored and rejected Christ. All, God has given all these things over, throughout all of history and yet they're choosing to reject the Messiah. Is, so has God's word failed? That's the idea in this next statement in verse six. Not as though, Paul says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect or fallen. It's not as though the word of God has taken none effect for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now this is not the first time Paul addresses this issue. Romans chapter three, verses one, two, and three. Let me read those. Paul said, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And then he says, much, every way. There's great advantage to being a Jew, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? What if some of those Jews did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Shall their unbelief make God's word fall to the ground? And that's that was something Paul had mentioned back in chapter three, and he goes into greater detail here in chapter nine, and he's gonna really expound on that. He's gonna show that their unbelief has not got, caused God's word to fail, whether the Jews jump on board or, or they reject Christ. God is still, listen, going to use them to get salvation to the whole world. I don't care if you reject Christ. I don't care if you Get on board with what God is doing. God is still gonna be able to use you for his purposes in the end. And his great purpose is to bring salvation to the whole world, including the Gentiles. Now, a quick word here as we, as we go on. As we read this chapter, some might look at this chapter and teach then that God is up here, and you'll see as we go through, but God is up there looking down at all humanity, something along the lines of this, and without any rhyme or reason, he's taking some and he's assigning some to salvation. I, you know, I created you and I, for whatever reason, I'm gonna save you. And, and all these people over here, well, you know what, I made them, but I'm making them and I'm not saving you, I'm, I'm sending you to hell. Uh, so some to salvation, some to reprobation. In other words, uh, most people, go, I'm gonna send to hell just for whatever reason, and a few are chosen, elected for heaven. It's almost like God is limiting those he wants to be saved. But I believe if we interpret this passage and this chapter correctly in context, I think we see the exact opposite. See, what I see, especially chapters nine all the way through 11, is that God is opening salvation to everyone. Through the Jews, he is expanding it rather than limiting it. Yes, God can save whomever he pleases. Absolutely, he is a sovereign God but he has pleased to save those who put their faith in Christ. Not just people with Jewish ancestry and not with those who keep the law. And as a sovereign God, he's gonna work everything out whether the Jews get on board or they don't. He's gonna, or they stand in opposition to him or they join in, God's still gonna work everything out so the salvation can be spread across the globe to every Jew and every Gentile, the, the gospel is there for them to receive. And I think this is what Paul is speaking about and that's what he spends the bulk of this chapter talking about. So here we go, verses seven through 13, we're gonna see the sovereign selection of Israel. Now, he, Paul has already stated that they are not all Israel which are of Israel, which means just because you're born a Jew or born in Israel, this does not mean you're a child of the promise. 
Paul uses a few examples to get his point across in the Old Testament. Here we go, verse seven. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. So God is saying that he made a sovereign selection a long time ago to use Abraham's seed to carry the promise of redemption to all mankind. But it's more narrow than that. It's not just Abraham. It's actually through Abraham and Isaac. Remember, Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. And so not every son of Abraham will be a child of the promise. Ishmael was older, and some might think, well, that's an that's a more natural choice than the promise should come through him. But it's not about ancestry alone. That's the point God's trying to make. It's not about who you're born to or what blood you have. It's about whether you are part of the promise of God. Another example of how God has done this before, he starts in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for verse 11, for the children being yet not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, and, but Esau have I hated. Whoa, that's an interesting verse. We'll get to that in a minute. What we're saying here, God is saying here, is that God chose Jacob and not Esau to carry the promise. Again, Abraham has Isaac and Ishmael, God chose Isaac to carry the promise. Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and some might think, well, it's more natural, choose the older, but God said, no, I'm gonna choose Jacob's line to be the one to carry the promise. He chose Jacob's descendants. Now, this process of God doing that is called election. It just means choosing, and God chose. It was his prerogative to choose. He could have chose anybody he wanted. He could have chose any family on the earth to do this, God's point is, I'm choosing them. Why? Because they're better, you, they're nicer, they look better. What, what's, what's the reason? God said, it's not any of that. It's just my choice. That's who I chose. I chose it before they were born. That's just my choice. Now, notice in verse 11, God chose which one would carry before they were born, as I said, which means that's his sovereign action, which means it's not based on works. And that's part of the big theme that Paul has been saying throughout this entire book of the Bible. It's not about works. Nothing's about works in this case. It's just because it's God's will. But then Paul quotes the passage here in Genesis chapter 25. The elder shall serve the younger. Genesis 25 and 23, here's what it says. And the Lord said unto her, two nations, that is Rebecca, two nations are in thy womb, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And this is where we need to stop and realize that what God is talking about here in this passage is national and not individual. This is one of the keys to understanding this whole chapter. God is speaking about national election, not individual salvation. God is not saying, Jacob I chose to save, and Esau I chose to send to hell. That's not what this is saying. Paul is saying, I quote, he's quoting Genesis 5 and saying, two nations 
were in her womb. One people and the other people. Jacob refers to the people of Israel and Esau is the people of Edom. Now, God did not look at Esau and say, I hate you. I hate all of your descendants. And so you're all going to hell and I give you no chance for heaven. If that's how we're looking at this passage, then we would have to say that God is choosing Jacob and electing them and all his descendants and all of them will be saved. Every single one of the Jews will accept Christ and they will be saved. And that's not what he's saying. And I just don't see that it got in the Bible or in the nature of God that he would say, I'm choosing you and I'm choosing you. And before you're born, I just have no reason. I just don't want to send you to heaven. No chance. In fact, it's very clear in verse 12 that it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about service. Look at verse 12 in chapter, or Romans chapter 9. The elder shall serve the younger. This is not talking about salvation. It's talking about service. God... Esau never served Jacob. The, the individual Esau never served Jacob. You, know, you don't see that in scripture, but Edom, that is the descendants of Esau, did serve the descendants of Jacob. You know, many get tied up then on this verse 13. Did, well, did God love, he says God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Does, is that what it means? Did God love Jacob and hate Esau? Again, remember, this is national, not individual. And secondly, the use of the words love and hate are about preference, not spite or hatred in the way we use it. Similar to how Jesus used the word. This is not the first time in scripture. Look at verse, or Luke chapter 14, verse 26. It says, these are Jesus' words, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So is God telling me, is Jesus telling me here to hate my wife, to hate my children, and hate all my family? Of course not. God tells us to honor our father and mother. And God also very clearly in scripture tells us men to love their wives. So what is Jesus saying? This is an ancient way of speaking of preference and, not, and, preference and priority. Put Jesus first, put Jesus first, that so, that so much so that it's almost as if your love for him is like hatred toward others. But put him first, and listen, I will say right now, if you put Jesus first, you can love everybody better. Amen. I'll love my wife far more if I have Jesus first as my priority. He fills me with a love that I never could have had by myself. So that's what Jesus is talking about, preference and not spite, and that's certainly the same case in Romans chapter nine here. So the point in Romans is that God just made a sovereign choice to use Jacob's descendants rather than Esau's to bring the Messiah. If you think this involves individual salvation, then you logically have to think that God hates every unsaved person from before they were born. But Paul's not saying that. God does not hate every every person, unsaved person. Romans 5, 8 is very clear, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves sinners. God loves sinners. The main idea here is that God is choosing one nation over another to bring his promise of redemption to the world. By the way, God does this all the time. He has elected me to be in the ministry, but not my brother, as at least it seems. 
God has elected him to be in business and to lead business people to the Lord, people I can't reach, and not me. He has elected Pastor Mike to go to India, but not me. He's elected you to a different purpose than me. We're all elected to different things. It's God's choosing, and it's God's choice. But to the Jews of Paul's day and ours, Paul is proving that just because the majority of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has rejected Christ, this doesn't mean God's failed. He can use whomever he pleases at any time to accomplish his plan to get the gospel to the world. In fact, God can even use the rejection of the Jews to the glory of God. Here, in fact, it's like him being a potter and molding things for his, for his glory. That's what we look at next in verses 14 to 23, the purposeful molding of Israel. Let's look at what he says here. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now is God unrighteous? As we look at these passages here, the point here on verse 14, is God unrighteous for choosing Jacob and not Esau, and, or Isaac, and not Ishmael? Paul's answer is, God forbid. God is never unrighteous. Listen, God, he says, can have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy, and he can harden whoever he wants to harden. He is God. He is sovereign. And then verse 15, Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 33. Right, now, Exodus 33 is right after the whole golden calf incident. Moses comes down off the mount, he has the law, and the people he finds are in just complete rebellion, dancing around this golden calf, wickedness just pervading, right at a time when they should be honoring the Lord and worshiping the Lord. Here he comes down to preach, and they're just in great wickedness. And God desires then at that point to wipe them all out. These people are ridiculous. I just brought them out of Egypt. I'm done with these people. And Moses then intercedes on the people's behalf. God, you can't kill them. <laughs> we just did all this in Egypt. You, your name needs to go throughout all the earth as you are a powerful and a great God. You can't do this, Lord. And God chose then to show mercy. And he, it was his choice. He could have killed them or he could have showed mercy and he chose to show mercy because of somebody standing in, in the gap, somebody interceding. And a very great picture of Jesus Christ. And that's when God called Moses, or tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion in Exodus 33. Now this is true. God can give mercy to whomever he wills. He is God. He can do what he wants. But the question here is, who has he chosen to give mercy to? He has chosen to give mercy to those who repent and put their faith in Christ. That has been his choice. That is cho that's his choice. We see it over and over again in Scripture. Uh, Paul has even said that in Romans. And Paul, in the whole Bible, there's this theme, this principle of grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. Anybody who humbles themselves and repents, God will show mercy to them. 
No one convinces God to show mercy, he says, through willpower or through works. God has chosen faith as the key. But what about those who don't repent? What about those who don't repent, don't come to Christ, don't exercise faith in Christ? Then what? Well, then they will be hardened. And in this case, what we're talking about, the word that we use for this is judicially hardened. Again, what we're talking about is somebody who hardens themselves against Christ, and then God will judicially excuse me, harden them for God's purposes. He will harden them even further. In other words, as an act of judgment against their hardening, God will make a person's heart even harder. And they will then either forever be judged or they will finally bow down and humbly repent. The picture Paul brings up for this way God has done this in the past is Pharaoh. Again, this has nothing to do with individual salvation. It's about God using him for the purposes of accomplishing his word and his plan. Uh, This doesn't say anything about salvation. Verse 17, when it says that God raised him up, he raised up Pharaoh, it doesn't mean that God brought him up from a baby, then you just send him to hell. That's not what that says. That's not what that means. It means that he raised him up to the highest position in in the land, in the world, really. And why would God raise this person up? Because he wanted to show his glory through this man. He He could show, as it says, his power and his name throughout the earth. God raised Pharaoh up to to bring him down. But what about God hardening his heart? And now in Exodus it says again and again that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But did you know that it says that Pharaoh Pharaoh hardened his own heart first? Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. In fact, one scholar went through and looked at all the times that it says that uh, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he, he counted 20 times It says uh, his heart was hardened. And 10 of those were from Pharaoh himself. And 10 of those, it said that God hardened his heart. The point is here that if man hardens his heart to God, then as an act of judgment, God will judicially harden his heart even further. And if God pleases, he will use this hardening for a bigger purpose uh, for God. And that is to get his glory throughout the earth. But you have to know that if Pharaoh, listen, we have to understand that if Pharaoh as a human, would have repented like another person in the Old Testament, like let's say Rahab the harlot. If if he would have repented like Rahab, don't you think God is a God of great compassion? And he would have listened to Pharaoh's heart. If Pharaoh would have softened his heart, he would have given him compassion. He would have given him mercy. That is the bulk of Scripture. That's what you see all throughout Scripture. That is the God that we have. So here's Paul's larger point here. Verse 17, Israel in Paul's day was like Pharaoh in Moses' day. Imagine what Paul was saying here. Guys, you Jews, you are like Pharaoh back then. You are stubborn and you are hard. You are not accepting Christ, but this does not stop the word of God from being accomplished. Just like Pharaoh couldn't stop God's will from being accomplished. God could use anybody to show his power and to declare his name throughout the world. But you know the Jews would have something to say about that. Verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Paul was anticipating it. Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? In other words, if the Jews' unrighteousness still serves the purposes of God, then how can God find fault in our unrighteousness? This is something he mentioned back in Romans chapter 3 as well. But here is the answer to that, verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? 
Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter over, uh, power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which had afore prepared, which he had afore prepared unto glory. To explain the answer to this human responsibility versus God's sovereignty question, Paul uses a potter and clay analogy, probably in reference to Jeremiah chapter 18. But I will say that I think so, there's a lot of folks who read this wrong. It is not saying that God is like a potter who purposely makes a bunch of pottery, just keeps making pottery only to just destroy it and burn it. He just makes pottery, makes pottery, and boom, I'm gonna, throw this, I'm gonna destroy this one in hell. Uh, I'm making all this pottery, boom, I'm just making it just because I wanna destroy it. I'm giving them no opportunity to get saved. Or there's just really no reason. I'm making all this. I'm just gonna send them to hell. What potter would do that? Why would you make vessels if you're not even, if you have no purpose for even making them? God's not up there making one and saying, you're in heaven, and then I'll make 10 more and say, you're going to hell. Make one, you're going to heaven. 10 more, you're going to hell. Follow with me now. Follow with me in this passage. When it says the, the thing formed, this does not mean created. It means molded. God is molding and forming people. But if that clay refuses the molding and says, look in verse 20, why have you made me thus? In other words, I am, I am resisting this. I, have, I don't want any part of this. I don't want any part of what you're making, how, how you're forming me then this means you want nothing to do with the potter's plan. Therefore, verse 21, God still has power over that clay and can still use it uh, how he wants, but more like he used Pharaoh as a vessel of dishonor. Paul here was primarily giving a lesson to the arrogant Jews. Just because you're a child of Abraham, God can still use you like a vessel, like Pharaoh, a vessel of dishonor. Then in verse 22, maybe God's plan is to show his wrath and power through you. Maybe that's his, what he's planning to do through your life. Even after, look what it says, that he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Now, now notice this, God was very long suffering, which means he, he was waiting for them to be moldable, be pliable. He was waiting for them. He suffered with them long. Please, please, come on. Let me do this. Let me do this. Now, does this sound, that God is long-suffering with people? Does that sound like he just makes people and never gives them a chance to be saved? No, it's the exact opposite. He was long-suffering. Same word he used in, uh, that Peter used in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need to remember this about our God. God is long-suffering toward the clay that he's forming and molding. But it says here that they are fitted for destruction, verse 22. Well, first of all, this does not say that God fitted them for destruction. It just says that they are fitted. And in Vine's Expository Dictionary of the Bible, Bible words, he says that this word is in the middle voice, 
which means that they fitted themselves. They fitted themselves for destruction. Just like Pharaoh fit himself for destruction. He hardened his heart. Now again, over and over and over again in scripture, we see God wanting all to be saved, all to come to the knowledge of the truth, all to come to repentance, that he loves all people. And people are either accepting or rejecting his free gift of salvation. It's a free gift. And that's the key theme here in these chapters, that God is using whatever he chooses to use. The Pharaohs, the Judases, the Romans, whatever he has to use, even if they reject him, he'll use them for his glory to bring salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. And he's going to bring them into the family of God like grafting them into a vine, as we're gonna see in a week or two. You can be very confident today. I think, I just wanna end with this here. That everybody, all of us can be very confident that God loves you. And God loves your children. And God loves the people you love. He loves everybody. Why do I know that? Because God says he does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Years ago when I left my secular job, there was a coworker I had who was as wicked as you could get. <laughs> I, just knowing about his life, knowing the things that we discussed, I, I just realized, man, this guy is as far out there and wi- just wic- living a wicked life. I don't want anything to do with him in that way, but I tried to witness, do the best I could. But he kind of had that, you know, ah, it's good for you kind of an attitude. But a couple months after I left that job and became a, a pastor, this young man called me out of the blue. And he was in just in, in huge desperation in his life because of some issues that had happened with relationships and other things. And not only relationships, but he was just absolutely just devastated by the sin. The sin had finally taken its toll in his life. And so I said, why don't you come to the church? We'll meet afterwards. And so he did. And we met up, and I sat there with him. And I was when I was thinking about this, and I... I was thinking about this passage. I'm so glad that I had such boldness and confidence to look this man in the eye and say, sir, I, I just have to tell you this. God loves you. And God wants you to just give up and come to Christ. Maybe all these bad things in your life have molded you and kind of led you to this moment where you can trust in Jesus Christ. Because God loves you, Jesus died for you. I would hate to, be ap- to have to have in my mind that uh, maybe God doesn't love him. Maybe God doesn't care about him. Maybe he's just, he's just one of those that God didn't die for. I can't, I can't have that. On my, uh, I just don't see that in scripture. Today, you can be confident. God loves you. God loves souls. God loves you. God loves your children. God loves your grandchildren. God loves us. And he wants everybody to come to repentance. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.